Hello, Eamon. Hello, Thomas. We've got a huge episode today, so I just want to get right into it. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, definitely. So in this series of Conflicted, we're exploring the various ways in which the idea of clash of civilizations can be used to understand Middle Eastern history and the conflicts which continue to rage across the region. As we said before, what we're trying to do isn't straightforward because civilization is a difficult word to define. But we're going to try. Having told the story of the end of America's quote-unquote empire in the Middle East, we're going to tell the story of how that empire began and developed during the Cold War, starting in your homeland, Eamon, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is, in a way, where the Cold War began. And to understand how, we'll explain how long-standing British power in the region gave way fitfully, and almost without anyone noticing, to American power. And we'll see how the Cold War world of spycraft, ideological conflict, and state paranoia continues into the present through Eamon's take on the notorious murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Whew, what an episode, Eamon, my goodness. <laughs> goodness, it's going to ruffle lots of feathers. The story we're telling today about the origins of the Cold War in Saudi Arabia dovetails remarkably neatly with your own family's history. And that story starts with the British Empire. Now, Eamon, your paternal grandfather was born in Afghanistan and moved to British India, the Raj, and became an officer in the British Indian Army. He was sent to Iraq in 1915 as part of the UK's Mesopotamian campaign, during which Britain grabbed Iraq from the Ottomans and incorporated it into the British Empire. Now, after the war in Iraq, he became uh, a head of police. Is that right? Yeah, he was the head of police in a Baghdad district then for the whole of Basra. The whole of Basra in southern Iraq. Wow, that's quite a job. He must have got his hands dirty. <laughs> Absolutely. He was one of those responsible for the suppression of the 1920 rebellion. I don't know if I feel sorry about that or proud. <laughs> <laughs> the 1920 Iraqi revolt. Now, this was an uprising of Iraqi nationalists, which was put down uh, by the British, but it also encouraged the British to adopt indirect rule in Iraq. Uh, they installed a Hashemite as king, King Faisal bin Hussein. The Hashemites, of course, were the traditional rulers of the Hejaz along the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula, where Mecca and Medina are. And in fact, that King Faisal was whom Alec Guinness played in Lawrence of Arabia, uh, very memorably, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so eventually, uh, your grandfather was invited by the ruler of Bahrain, which was then a British protectorate, to join the security services there. So, Eamon, the question is, does spycraft, as well as working for foreign powers, run in your blood? Oh, it runs in the family. Like, <laughs> my father did it. So was my grandfather. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it was in Bahrain that your father grew up. And in the early 1930s, after deciding to seek their fortune just across the water in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, he and his older brother, your uncle, caught the attention of a certain British spy. That British spy 
is known to, to the English world, to the English-speaking world, as uh, St. John Philby. St. John Philby. St. John Philby. St. John Philby. Very posh name. But to the Arabs, uh, and especially to the Saudi royal family and to King Abdelaziz himself, he was known as Sheikh Abdullah Philby. Sheikh Abdullah Philby. Now, St. John Philby, Abdullah Philby, uh, is a fascinating figure in the history of the of the later British Empire and the transition of that world order into the American-led world order uh, of the Cold War. Now, his life, St. John Philby's life, mirrors your family's life, Eamon. He was also sent to Iraq during the First World War. And after the war, he became Minister of Internal Security in Iraq, meaning he would have been your grandfather's boss. Absolutely. But just before that, during the Arab Revolt, which broke out during the war, now, whereas the famous Lawrence of Arabia was the British agent most active in the Hejaz on the West, advocating the claims of the Sharif of Mecca to be the king of the Arabs, Philby was sent to the Nejd, the Central Arabian Plateau, on a mission to the then emir of the Nejd, Abdulaziz, known in the West as Ibn Saud, who was then a rising power in Arabia. Philby ended up becoming a staunch advocate of Abdulaziz, who had conquered the eastern province where you grew up, Eamon, only a few years before. Now, explain how Arabians like yourself, who weren't from the Nejd, from the central Arabian plateau, where Riyadh is, where the House of Saud come from, how would Arabians like yourself have regarded Nejdis? Well, if you remember, the Nejdis uh, were always regarded by the rest of the population of Arabia as the noble warriors uh, somewhat nomadic, but also with some uh, settlements that were regarded as the trading centers of Najd. So they were warriors and also they were merchants, but also they were religious missionaries all at the same time. Merchants, warriors, and religious missionaries. Religious missionaries is a nice way of putting it. I mean, zealots. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Wahhabi <laughs> zealots, let's say. <laughs> so I wouldn't call them Wahhabis, you know, because basically I myself as a Salafist, so basically I'll call them a Salafist. You know, oh, zealots. I beg your pardon. Yes, Wahhabi <laughs> is often regarded by Muslims uh, themselves, Salafi Muslims themselves, as a slur. I don't mean it as a slur, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, but nonetheless, uh, you know, for many people, they were regarded as uh, staunch religious fundamentalists. You know, this is the best I can describe them. You know, also they were warriors and at the same time with a mercantile bent to them. So that is why they were regarded as fearsome uh, in both the east and the west of the Arabian Peninsula. But nonetheless, these fears, you know, started to lessen a bit as King Abdelaziz adopted a more conciliatory tone towards both the east and the west of the Arabian Peninsula. So, yeah, the House of Saud, now they have a very long history, but they really burst into history properly in the 18th century when they entered into a famous alliance with the Muslim reformer Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, from whom the word Wahhabi comes. Uh, and, and they conquered at that time much of the Arabian Peninsula and formed the first Saudi state. That's how it's known to scholars. That state was destroyed by the Ottomans in 1818. But only a few years later, the House of Saud had recovered and established a smaller but still impressive second Saudi state. Now, this second state suffered from internal divisions and was eventually conquered by a rival Arabian clan, allies of the Ottomans, the House of Rashid. Abdulaziz, the king whom St. John Philby, Abdullah Philby, was an advisor to and who founded the third Saudi state, the current kingdom of Saudi Arabia, 
Abdulaziz was then only 16 years old, uh, and he went into exile to Kuwait with his family, where he nursed a powerful ambition to restore his royal house's fortunes. Now, this he did starting in 1902, reconquering first Riyadh, and from there, slowly extending his rule across the peninsula. Now, he just started his expansion when Philby met him in 1917. And it's important to point out that Philby was basically an intelligence operative. He actually became head of the Secret Service in Palestine during the mandate, where he would come to grief with the British and was eventually forced to resign on account of sending confidential information to Abdulaziz. Now, he really, really respected Abdulaziz. He'd grown to believe that he was a great leader. And uh, after his resignation, Philby ended up settling in Jeddah, where he was living when Abdulaziz conquered the Hejaz, becoming its king in 1925. Philby grew then even closer to Abdulaziz, became one of his closest advisors, converted to Islam in 1930, and took the name Abdullah. Now, Philby argued strongly that Abdulaziz should unite all of his domains under his sole rule, which he did in 1932, proclaiming the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And that is the Saudi Arabia that we know today and in which you grew up. But your family knew Sinjin Philby, Abdullah Philby. Is that right, Eamon? Of course, because of the fact that uh, both Philby and my grandfather were uh, you know, in Iraq, serving the British uh, in the military uh, sense. But also when my grandfather moved to Bahrain and from there my father and my um, uncle, who were hyperlinguists, both of them. I mean, you know, each, I think my father spoke five languages and my uncle spoke six. Another thing which must run in the blood, Eamon, because my goodness, you are also good at languages. <laughs> Thank you. So, so they moved across from Bahrain to Saudi Arabia just at the right time in 1932, when Saudi Arabia became the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, Abdullah Philby, uh, as I will always call him, Abdullah Philby, uh, because that's how my father and my uncle always called him, Sheikh Abdullah Philby, um, he was instrumental in really delivering a blow to the British Empire. Uh, it doesn't sound right that you know an agent of the British Empire. Uh, delivered a blow to the British Empire. Uh, but he was the reason why King Abdulaziz, when he was considering granting oil concessions to the Anglo-Persian you know, oil company, he decided, based on Sinjim Philby, or Sheikh Abdullah Philby's advice, to instead grant the rights to the Americans. To the Ha-ha. yeah, to your uh, part of America, actually, to California, <laughs> to Southern California. <laughs> Before we go into the the discovery of oil in Saudi Arabia, I'd like to zoom out and talk about Arabia in general. It's a very ancient place. It's vast. It's the size of India. It's been inhabited from really the beginning of time, uh, and those beginnings have come down to us as as sacred history, really recorded in the Bible and indeed in the Quran, as well as an oral tradition. Now, in the Bible, the forefathers of the Arabian people, as well as the Jews, is Abraham, Ibrahim, as he's known in, in the Arabic world. Abraham had two sons. The younger son, born to his wife Sarah, was Isaac, the father of Jacob, from whose 12 sons came the 12 tribes of Israel, and down through the centuries to the Jews today. Now, Abraham's older son was Ishmael, born to his Egyptian concubine, Hagar, 
Now, Eamon, tell us what happened to Hagar and Ishmael in the story. Sarah was jealous of Hagar and Ishmael and instructed her husband Abraham to send them away, and he did so. Where did he take them, according to the story? According to Islamic teachings, uh, God commanded him to go south, you know, from the Levant. So he kept going south and south and south. He thought he might, you know, drop them in the Nabat, but actually, like, and he continued. Um, he thought then it would be Yemen, but then God stopped him. So they ended up in an abandoned valley, in a very, you know, barren valley, you know, and that valley later became Mecca. So there he left them. And Hagar, of course, was left alone uh, with a child, uh, her son Ishmael, but with no water, with nothing. But then she just encouraged her husband, if this is the God's command, then, you know, I will follow it. Just go. Um Miraculously, uh, beneath Ismail's feet, water started to gush, you know, and to come from beneath the ground. And that would later become known as the Holy Well of Zamzam, which is, you know, still, you know, gushing water to this day. Now, you know, when the birds started circling that valley, an Arab tribe... Remember, Ishmael is half uh, Aramaic, half Egyptian. Yes, because Abraham was an Aramean. Uh, and, uh, so, so Ishmael's father was an Aramean and his mother was an Egyptian. Yeah. So when one Yemenite tribe from, you know, from uh, Yemen who are Arabic people. S- Southern Arabs, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So when they were traveling towards the north, towards the Levant, they realized that the birds were circling that valley and they were wondering, you know, there is no water. I mean, you know, they only circle water, these birds. And so they went to inquire and they found an Egyptian woman with a child in the middle of that barren valley, which has no water whatsoever or any trees even. Um, and they found her with lots of water and she was trying to build a well around it. And so they asked her, you know, why on earth do you have water? How does this happen? So she explained, of course, in order to gain power over them, that she is the concubine of a holy man, and this is his son, and that he wa- they were left there on God's command, and a miracle happened. This water came out. So, of course, the tribe realized that this is a special woman, and her son will be special. And so they said, can we settle beside you because if there is a water and this is on a caravan way, you know, trade caravan way, so we can make money. Uh, can we settle next to you? She said, yes, but me and my son are the masters of the water. They accepted. So they said, but only on one condition that when he comes of age, he will marry from us. So the tribe is called Jurhum. And when Ishmael became a young man, he married from them. And his language, Aramaic, and his half, you know, Egyptian heritage, mixed with the Southern Arabs, and, you know, his 12 sons became the 12 uh, new Arabian tribes of the north, and their language became the dominant, which replaced the old Southern Arabic. It's a fascinating story because it really holds in in the cultural memory of the Arabs uh, something real about their origins. They are a mixture of an ancient Southern Arabian people, of the Aramean people of the north. Their language reflects a mixture of these two sources. Um, And that's the story of how the city of Mecca was founded, obviously an extremely important city today, both for Arabs and all Muslims. Now, when Abraham left Hagar and Ishmael there, thinking, of course, that they might die, there was the, the holy well of Zamzam had not yet been revealed, he gave a famous prayer. The Quran uh, 
records this prayer as, My Lord, make this land secure and provide its people with fruits. This is called the Prayer of Abraham. And, and Eamon, you told me quite interestingly that this prayer features importantly in Saudi self-identity today. Absolutely. They call it Da'wah uh, to Ibrahim, you know, the prayer of Abraham. Whenever they discover oil, oh, this is Abraham's prayer when he said the fruits. The fruits in the Quran doesn't mean like, you know, just only like you know, the fruits you buy from the grocery, but it means the bounties. You know, it means whatever treasures, you know, that you will find in Arabia, it is the blessings of Abraham, you know, upon this land. So oil, that is the prayer of Abraham. Gold, phosphate, bauxite, you know, silver, uh, you know, gas. This is a prayer of Abraham. This is what Abraham, you know, you know how he blessed this land. And therefore, this is why the descendants of Abraham right now are reaping the rewards of that prayer 4,000 years ago. Which brings us back to oil, where we left off. Now, by the time King Abdulaziz was rising in power, the geopolitics of oil were already active in the region. It had uh, first been discovered in Iran in 1908 by what would become British Petroleum. Then the First World War proved that petroleum was the future and that whoever controlled the oil had a major tactical advantage. Britain was the major player, but also France. And they signed an agreement in 1920 shutting American oil companies out of the Iraqi oil fields. Uh, Standard Oil of California was one of those big American companies. And in fact, you know, what the thing that put Southern California, where I'm from, on the map was oil. And I can remember as a kid driving around and seeing still these creaky old oil pumps <laughs> going up and down, uh, probably uh, something similar to, to what you experienced, Damon, when you were driving around Khobar in the eastern Absolutely. province of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> now, the Great Depression had reduced the pilgrimage uh, of the Hajj by 60%. And that was the the major source of revenues for the Saudi government in the pre-oil period. King Abdulaziz needed to find another source of funding. So this inspired his desire to get some oil prospecting going. And that's, as you said before, Eamon, where St. John Philby, uh, despite being British, advised the king to grant the concession to the Americans. He thought it would better safeguard the country's independence. Uh, and so Standard Oil was given the concession in 1933 and started a subsidiary, which would in time be called the Arabian American Oil Company, Aramco. Now, this is around the time that Philby met your uncle. Absolutely. So I remember uh, the story in the family is that when my uh, uncle and my father, when they crossed uh, in, from Bahrain into Saudi Arabia, um, their linguistic skills immediately caught the attention uh, of um, uh, Sinjim Philby, Abdullah Philby, who was already uh, talking to the American delegations and courting them in the eastern province and trying to convince them that there is oil. If there is oil in Bahrain, you know, there will be oil here. It's just the same sh- you know, the same continental shelf. It's the same, you know, uh, place. I mean, if they find oil there, you will find oil here. Of course, it took five years until they found the first you know, oil well. And, you know, then later, you know, uh, they found the largest oil field in the world. Yes, five years it took them, but they finally struck gold, as you say, black gold, on the 3rd of March, 1938. And this is the famous Damam oil well number seven. Well, you can go visit it now. It's a kind of national monument. So what happened here is that 
uh, Abdullah Filbi realized that you know my uncle who spoke six languages and uh, you know was very much wise you know in the ways of the world um, you know and he was well traveled you know from Iraq to Bahrain to Cairo um, and back again so he was very well educated so he um, decided this young man could actually serve you know in the court of King Abdulaziz as a translator and interpreter which was very much needed. So uh, my uncle was then sent to the court of King Abdulaziz to become an interpreter. Um, so from being one of the first 10 employees of Aramco, and if you go to Aramco's museum, you will find his picture there as one of the first <laughs> 10 employees there, you <laughs> um, know, all the way to the court of King Abdulaziz. And it shows that the influence of Abdullah Filbi was positive in two areas. Uh, as far as King Abdulaziz and his ruling, uh, you know, uh, strategy was concerned. First, Abdullah Filbi advised him to ignore the British and to give the oil concession to the Americans, which proved in later years to be absolutely vital, um, not only for the independence of Saudi Arabia, but uh, to the decline of the British Empire in uh, later years, as, of course, they were denied these riches uh, because of that advice, which in absolutely hacked off the British in later years uh, regarding uh, Abdullah Filbi and his betrayal. But... The second advice, which is was which was equally important, is that Abdullah Filbi told the king that you need to rely on the educated classes in the east and the west of Arabia, the Hijazi intelligentsia, and the eastern province merchants who were mixing always with the British in India um, and uh, the trading networks that were taking place there. If you rely on both, then you know, you, you have to understand also that he also told him to incorporate the southern tribes uh, in the south of Arabia, uh, Al-Ghamdis, Al-Zahranis, Al-Shahranis, Al-Gharnis, all of these people. Who, who really had, a, had were Yemeni tribes, really, originally, yeah. but they'd been conquered by the House of Saud. Yeah, to incorporate them into the military. So he told him that, you know, a chair cannot stand on one leg. You have to have four legs. You know, you have to have the Najdis, the Easterners, the Westerners, the Hijazis, and, you know, the uh, southern Arabian uh, provinces, all part of your uh, court, part of your empire, you know, this new fledgling kingdom. And this is exactly what he did. And this is how, you know, a Durrani Afghan, you know, uh, individual like my uncle, who was, you know, who raised in Iraq and Bahrain and studied in Cairo and then, you know, uh, spotted by Philby, ended up being the translator of King Abdulaziz. At the same time when, you know, a Hijazi, from another old Turkic family, a Turkish family, you know, Ottoman family, living in Medina for 500 years, you know, became the personal physician of King Abdulaziz. Ah, you're talking about Muhammad Khashoggi, the, yes. the grandfather of the famous Jamal Khashoggi. We'll get back to him in a second. So because of your father and his brother, your uncle migrated to the eastern province, that's where you grew up. And uh, obviously that whole part of Saudi Arabia was dominated by Aramco, uh, an American company until beginning in the late 70s, it introduced a phased transfer of, of ownership to the Saudi government. Now, American culture must have to some extent been present there uh, in, in your childhood, even before the uh, troops arrived in 1991 to expel Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. Is there something like a hint of a clash of civilizations there? I mean, there were cordial relations between the Saudis and the Americans, but Americans largely lived behind walls. Paint a picture of, of how this strange modern society of the eastern province, the oil society, with American oil engineers and 
Arabs from all over the world working. What kind of culture was it? Well, actually, we used to see them more, you know, more often than you know people uh, would think was possible. Uh, American families, British families, Dutch families, because don't forget, you know, um, you know, uh, BP, uh, British Petroleum, and uh, the Royal Dutch uh, Shell, you know, company. They all were present there also as subcontractors or uh, to provide services. Uh, Schlumberger, one of the companies that you know is famous in the world of oil, were there. So there were so many Europeans, you know, also like in, uh, Americans, Canadians, Australians, Dutch, um, uh, Germans and British. And, you know, there were certain supermarkets there that catered for their tastes. Um, and so places like uh, Safeway, you know, and Aramco had their own TV station, which was broadcasting, you know, to the eastern province. And they had all the latest sitcoms from America. And so we were watching sitcoms uh, and we were watching comedy shows coming from America and dramas and all of that because uh, Aramco TV was broadcasting there to the American families and to the Western audience there. So, no, there was actually um, not only a cultural, um, you know, uh, interaction, but also educational. Why? Because the uh, schools I went to, uh, you know, first, uh, you know, Ibn Jaber school and then Farabi school, these two schools, the primary and middle schools, were actually built by Aramco. And they were built to mirror exactly the same architecture and the same standard of uh, high-end American schools. So, you know, with the lockers and everything and all of that, if you, if you walk into them, you will think, you, you know, if an American walk into them, ignore the dress code, you know, you will think you are in an American uh, you know, there are basketball courts, you know, there are <laughs> locker rooms and all of these things. And they were built by Aramco. And the uh, King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals also was completely Americanized. You know, the entire education there from top to bottom, basically, is American curriculum. Um, and uh, most of the uh, professors and educators there were either Americans or were educated in America. I wonder what the American residents of the Eastern Province thought about aspects of Arabian culture, because certainly one thing which really divides Westerners from Muslims is Sharia law. Sharia law almost haunts Westerners. It's a sort of byword for harsh <laughs> justice, bordering on injustice. You know, we're sort of scared of it. And uh, we all have the image in our minds of beheadings and public executions. I remember when I was first in Riyadh in 2011, being told about its infamous Chop Chop Square outside <laughs> the city's main Friday mosque where public beheadings were regularly carried out. Now, growing up, Eamon, the fact of public executions wouldn't have been particularly unusual for you, I think. I mean, you told me that you attended your first execution when you were nine years old. Yes. You know, against the explicit orders of my family, of course. But uh, nonetheless, I, you know, I still remember there was um, a case of a, a pedophile. I mean, a, uh, someone basically who kidnapped a young boy and, you know, uh, raped and killed him. And so... Um, Sounds you know, like a real jerk, this guy. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so, um, one of my, you know, the execution, the executions in Khubar used to take place um, in a public square in front of a mosque called Anas bin Malik. I mean, for those listeners who are from Khubar, <laughs> they will be familiar with. And I, I you know, so the, one of my friends, his house was just overlooking the square. And so, you know, me and several friends, we, you know, went after Friday prayers to his house, to the rooftop in order to uh, observe. And even though the execution was taking place about 200 meters away, 
The sight of the sword striking the man and, uh, of course, the head falling to the uh, ground and the blood gushing, I mean, that, you know, basically sent me home back numb. I felt like, you know, my hands numb, you know, going, walk, walking home. I was still in shock, um, you know, and, uh, you know, my mother was screaming her lungs off, like, you know, why did you have to see it? Um then two years later, I saw the other execution, uh, but this time basically I was ready for it. This time I knew what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, I mean, but then I saw in between executions that were supposed to happen, but never happened. Yeah, so this is interesting. I never really encountered this aspect of Sharia law. I mean, you told me, and it really fascinated me, that that the reason why public executions are encouraged in Sharia law isn't for the reasons that we might think. It's not because there's some prurient, sadistic desire to revel in someone's gruesome death. It's actually, in a way, the opposite. The reason why there are public executions and why, you know, the family of the victim or victims need to be present there uh, to witness the justice, you know, being done is, and also for the other people to come and see, is also for them, for the people to encourage and to, you know, really almost beg the family of the victims to forgive and to show forgiveness. There are, uh, especially if the murder happened, you know, um, due to rage or, uh, you know, um, not a premeditated murder, but basically something happened during rage. Um, and there are no other aspects like, you know, rape or kidnapping or anything like that. So if if it is just a question of a murder happened between two people, I mean, uh, this is when the families are encouraged to forgive by the you know, onlookers and bystanders who sometimes basically will be willing to contribute to the blood money, you know, to the compensation that the family would receive if they forgive. So let's break this down. The In Sharia law, murder is a civil offense. It's not actually a criminal offense in the same way that we understand it. A murder case is settled between the victim and the, and the murderer. The state is there to establish guilt and to arbitrate between those two parties. And if the victim's family decide to forgive, then all is forgiven. And this for as a westerner this comes as a shock i mean i in in a in a in a western murder case if the father or the son of a murder victim stands up in court and says your honor i forgive the murderer the state will say well that's very nice of you but <laughs> this is up to us to punish the murderer not you this is different in sharia law yeah because the sharia focuses a lot on restitution um in cases like these especially in murder they focus on restitution for the victim's family and therefore uh, the victim's family are given control over the process. Why? Because if they want justice, they can get it. They can have a life for a life. I know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a life is taken, so the other life will be taken too. An eye for an eye. However, if the family of the uh, victim are willing to forgive, it's still, it is in their control. It was their gift you know, so even if they forgive, still justice is done because, you know, that person took a life, they spared the life. So one way or another, that power gives, you know, immense, um, you know, restitution in both ways. Yes, I mean, you sent me you sent me some links, uh, Eamon, to to some YouTube videos which I watched. I watched with some trepidation because you know you could see there there was the 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 perpetrator. He was on his knees and he was circled by Arabs, and there was the sword. And I thought, oh no, what am I going to see? 
And to my surprise, what I saw was the crowd really encouraging the victim's family to forgive, sometimes yeah. pushing money into, into the hands of the victim's family, saying, take this money, forgive. It was very moving. Uh, it was clear that there was even a sheikh there that was, an, uh, that was trying to negotiate forgiveness, if you can imagine such a thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, the Quran says, uh, that you know, an eye for an eye, you know, basically. Uh, but what it says after that, whoever you know, forgive and you know, seek the path of uh, you know, forgiveness, you know, God will reward him. So it is important to understand that you know, is you know, people are not there you know, to witness executions out of morbid curiosity, they are there to encourage forgiveness. One episode in particular of this forgiveness is that when uh, the cleric who was responsible for my religious education as a young man, you know, from the age of nine until the age of 16, and under him I learned so much of Islamic theology, and I'm still grateful to him to this day. So he um, was known for uh, arbitrating between, you know, families of victims and families of murderers in order to try to, you know, uh, achieve forgiveness. So he had a son. And his son was in his 20s. And in 2014, his son was murdered, you know, by, you know, basically a business associate over a dispute. I mean, it was, you know, just young people, hot-headed moment, and, you know, there was a stabbing. And, you know, his son was, you know, died. He died. He died. So the man was arrested. Uh, he was same age as uh, the victim. Um, so this cleric, he rushed to the prison to see that man. And uh, when he went into the police station, of course, everyone in the police station know who he is. And they said uh, to him, you know, of course, after offering their condolences, they said, you know, uh, please, Sheikh, do not forgive at the beginning. They, you know, because they knew he was coming to forgive, you know, and rushing to forgive. And, you know, let him just rot in prison for a while so he can know what happened. And he said, no, you know, I have a duty and I know what I'm supposed to do. So he went, he... Uh, met him, he said, just tell me what happened, you know, and he told him the story and he was fully remorseful and cannot believe what happened and what rage overtook him. So the cleric said, I forgive you and I don't want any blood money or compensation or restitution or anything. You can go, go, just go home. And of course there was that shock. I mean, you know, he said, I just killed your son. He said, I spent the past 25 years of my life convincing families of murdered people to forgive the murderers and to spare their lives. It will be extremely hypocritical of me now to be in this situation, and I even hesitate because I cannot hesitate for the sake of other you know, uh, people who I will try to spare their lives later. So I have to spare yours now and without hesitation. So, you know... Sometimes, like, I mean, when I reflect on this, I think that if only people know that forgiveness, you know, might always seem Christian, but it has a lot of room within Islamic society. Well, I certainly thought that myself when you told me the story the first time of this, of this sheikh whose, uh, whose own son had been murdered, and yet he forgave the murderer immediately. I just thought, oh my goodness, he's more Christian than the Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so back to uh, uh, the rise of the Cold War. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's said famously that Britain conquered the world in, quote, a fit of absence of mind. And if that's true, it's, it's really even truer of the United States, especially in the Middle East. As we've said, America's foothold in Saudi Arabia began as a private concern. Aramco was a private company run on commercial lines only. And when the Second World War was brewing, King Abdulaziz in Riyadh adopted a neutral position. He favored the allies, especially because Britain was still the great power in the region, but he did flirt with the Axis powers. So Japan, for example, did attempt to gain a countrywide oil concession in 1939, and King Abdulaziz listened to them. And this was particularly alarming to the Americans uh, because Japan, you know, obviously was a growing imperial threat uh, on the Pacific. This is when the U.S., military, the U.S. government, began to regard Saudi independence as a strategic asset. During the war, the U.S. was also neutral at first. Uh, And for that reason, the British actually found it useful to allow the U.S. to offer Abdulaziz various forms of aid to keep him more favoring the Allies. So uh, there was a huge drought in 1939, for example, and the U.S. sent an agricultural mission to help relieve the suffering there. And again, because the war had cut off global uh, travel routes, the Hajj had collapsed and Abdulaziz needed money. So Aramco, through the encouragement of the U.S. government, stepped up and lent the Saudi government money, amounting to the country's entire budget in 1939, in 1940, and in 1941. Then, of course, America, after uh, Pearl Harbor, joined the war, declared war on Germany and Japan, and its focus became increasingly on the Pacific theater to combat Japan. And so the U.S. Navy needed Saudi Arabia as a way station and to guarantee oil supplies, which were, of course, vital to the war effort. And then towards the very end of the, of the war, since aviation had really developed and would mean in the future that air bases would be what tied the world together and allowed uh, America's imperial power projection to take off in the way that naval bases had done before. The Dahran airfield was negotiated with uh, King Abdulaziz, and an airbase was opened in Dahran for the U.S. Air Force, which would become a linchpin in the Cold War. The fence of that airbase is only 800 meters from the home I grew up in. <laughs> so you grew up with that airbase just in your backyard. I used to hear the fighter jets flying in and out all the time. <laughs> so with that base in Dahran, And with a firm foothold in Saudi Arabia, thanks to Aramco, uh, America begins its Cold War journey. So now the the American-Saudi partnership in the Cold War, it developed slowly, and it grew more important ideologically when the White House realized, and this is in the 60s now, that pan-Islamism grounded in the Saudi king's control of the two holy mosques was an effective counterweight to the competing ideology of Arab nationalism focused on Egypt which was broadly speaking supported by the Soviet Union as a, as a means of eventually spreading communism into the region. Now, Saudi pan-Islamism and anti-Arab nationalism led to the kingdom accepting ideological Islamists, mainly Muslim Brotherhood members, as refugees from other Muslim countries where they were being persecuted. These Muslim Brotherhood members entered the civil service, the security services, and the education system and helped to spread modern Islamist ideas throughout Saudi society. This would in time combine with the country's own version of Salafist Islam to create 
the monster we know as global jihadism, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and other such groups that we've talked about a lot on Conflicted. But in the 80s, as we all know, this form of Islamism was harnessed by the U.S. in its Cold War struggle against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And as I say, this has all been covered and conflicted before. The Saudis maintained this Cold War relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood long after the Cold War ended. And we can say that within the Saudi political establishment, there have always been reformist voices advocating for change. And these reformist voices were on a spectrum with liberals at one end advocating secularism, freer markets, individual rights, things like that, and moderate Islamists on the other end affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. This approach where the Saudi government attempted to balance Islamist and liberal voices within the political spectrum came to an end with the Arab Spring, uh, especially in 2013. Isn't that right, Eamon? Oh, yeah. 2013, I think, was the moment in which the Saudis, um, or I would say basically the wing within the Saudis who wanted to divorce themselves from the Muslim Brotherhood won the argument against the other wing, which believed that a coexistence with the Muslim Brotherhood was possible. At the time, you remember, the Muslim Brotherhood had, had uh, achieved power through democratic means in Egypt. Uh, this was the result of the Arab Spring in Egypt. There were elections and uh, Mohamed Morsi the, became president. He was the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood or a Muslim Brotherhood leader there. Absolutely. But here we come to the thorny issue of the coup led by the current president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, and the question here the choices that were presented to the Saudi leadership at the time it was under the rule of King Abdullah. Late King Abdullah convened a meeting and that meeting uh, was an urgent national security meeting in which um, um, you know, his son, the head of the National Guard, um, uh, Prince Muta bin Abdullah, his other son, the Minister of um, uh, Foreign Affairs, who was serving under the Foreign Minister, uh, Abdul Aziz bin Abdullah, Saud al-Faisal, the Foreign Minister, was there. His brother, Turk al-Faisal, who was in the past the head of the GIP, the intelligence. Prince Mohammed bin Naif, who was the Minister of Interior. And his now on the run um, advisor, Saad al-Jabri, um, you know, was there. And the question was like this. In six hours, the Egyptian military is going to depose uh, the democratically elected president of Egypt, Mahmoud Morsi. So Sisi had called King Abdullah to, to say, look, in, we're, we're going to do this. Do we have your buy-in? I mean, the Egyptian military institution as a whole called up the Saudis and the Emiratis and told them we are going to move against uh, President Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. We are going to depose them completely from power. And in order for this coup to be um, successful diplomatically and accepted by... Legitimized, really. Yeah, yeah, legitimized, yeah, you know, in the eyes of the world, we need your backing. You are the de facto uh, leader or semi-leader of the uh, Sunni Muslim world, and therefore we need you on our side. Now, the reality is that the King Abdullah asked, you know, uh, will that come back... Uh, against us. I mean, because if we do that, you know, then we are going to be divorced completely from the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, you know, we cut all ties with them and we burn all the bridges. So those who were arguing, you know, for 
no, we shouldn't back this up and we shouldn't let, uh, you know, this happen. This will um, antagonize the Muslim Brotherhood. This will encourage more which, terrorism. Which, which had been an important plank in Saudi foreign policy. For example, in Yemen, yeah. I mean, the, the Saudis had very close relationships with the Islah party in Yemen, which is a largely Muslim Brotherhood party. It was one way in which Saudi Arabia kept a handle on things in Yemen. So being open to the Muslim Brotherhood for many decades was an important part of Saudi foreign policy, but this was all changing. Yeah. And the reason is because um, those who actually advocated for burning the bridges said that in the year between uh, middle of 2012 to the middle of 2013, in which Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood were in charge of Egyptian politics and Egyptian diplomacy, it proved to be disastrous. Why? Because the you know the fact is that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood couldn't wait to enact certain policies that encouraged you know forms of extremism to grow, and I'm talking about the fact that they opened the prisons wide to jihadists and extremists you know to roam around you know without any. Uh, restrictions, Hamas terrorists, like in a way, roaming in the streets of Cairo and Alexandria without any uh, checks on them. So for me, for example, I mean, as you know, uh, as someone with the fatwa on his head, like in Fam al Qaeda, I used to go to Egypt, you know, before and after the uprising, you know, uh, in 2009 and 2010, and then, you know, and then after that, in 2011, even in Ramadan of 2011, I was in Egypt, I was praying in the mosques, I was going to Alexandria, I was going to Cairo, no problem whatsoever. It is after Morsi took over that, you know, Muhammad Zawahiri, you know, the brother of Ayman Zawahiri, was roaming the streets fine, like those returnees from Afghanistan, all of the people who the Egyptian intelligence, with the Pakistani intelligence help, Rounded up from Peshawar, you know, in Pakistan and from the camps in Afghanistan, they were imprisoned in Egypt, you know, their prison cells were opened. The, in fact, the master bomb maker of Al-Qaeda, Abu Khabab, you know, who is, who is Egyptian, his own son. Who taught you how to make bombs. <laughs> absolutely. His own son, another qualified bomb maker, was let loose and was actually given a passport in order to go and fight in Syria. You know, so... You know, suddenly, you know, uh, the uh, Saudis in particular were worried, as well as the Emiratis and even the Kuwaitis, they were worried. Uh, We thought the Muslim Brotherhood rule in Egypt will be moderate and they will not, you know, um, appease the extremists to this level. You know, it, it was really worrying. I know many listeners will be thinking, oh, but they were democratically elected. And I, I, I accept that. But as someone who was keeping an eye on all of the uh, issues regarding security and safety in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, and in the Middle East, the level of extremist infiltration and jihadist congregation in Egypt between mid-2012 to 2013 was alarming for everyone, including the Saudis and myself also. So as you say, King Abdullah uh, convened this meeting with all the top decision makers in the kingdom and said, look, are we going to support this coup or not? And he, he took a straw poll of the room. The majority supported King Abdullah's uh, inclination to support the coup, um, and especially Princes Saud al-Faisal and Turk al-Faisal. Of course, Turk al-Faisal was worried about the uh, number of jihadists, you know, uh, who are free at large in Egypt, you know, you know whether whether one day they will turn their gaze on Saudi Arabia again and we will have the bloody years of Al-Qaeda's campaign, you know, between 2003 and 2006 in Saudi Arabia repeated. 
Now, with all this background info, we're in a place to better understand an event that could have been ripped straight from the Cold War. Uh, and I'm talking about the notorious murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. Now, I got to admit, Eamon, in the run-up to recording this episode today, I've been having sleepless nights. The Khashoggi affair is a landmine, and the things you've got to say about it don't entirely conform to the received narrative. Now, how can I be sure that you're not whitewashing what is unquestionably a gruesome murder and a heinous crime carried out by agents of the Saudi government. I would say that here at Conflicted, we only deal with facts. You know, you know and uh, facts are facts, and it doesn't care about you know, our narratives and our prejudices and who we favor and who we don't favor. In real world, basically, we're dealing with facts. And, you know, and based on the facts, facts alone also sometimes basically are orphans. And the parents of the facts are precedent and analysis. And you have to put these three together, facts, precedent, and analysis. And once you put them together, you reach the truth. My problem, of course, as an ordinary guy, I'm not, I'm not like you, Eamon. I don't have access to uh, privileged information. So as an ordinary <laughs> guy trying to find out the facts, I sometimes struggle. And this is one of the problems uh, with the 21st century and with the sort of media environment that we have today. It's not always easy to know what the facts are. Now, when it comes to Jamal Khashoggi, most of our listeners will know who he is. Uh, he was born in Medina in 1958 to that prominent Hejazi family that you mentioned before with close connections to the royal family. As we said, his grandfather was King Abdulaziz's personal physician. Now, in the late 70s, like many, many young men of his generation, Jamal Khashoggi was inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, he claimed that he officially joined them for a time. Uh, and he adopted their perspective on world affairs. Now, this was very usual at the time. In the early 80s, he became a journalist and established himself as one of the Arab world's most dynamic voices, reporting on the jihad in Afghanistan especially, during which he became acquainted with leading figures in that campaign, including Osama bin Laden. By the 90s, his journalism overlapped with intelligence work on behalf of the Saudi government as they sought to rein in an increasingly threatening bin Laden. Uh, and Khashoggi became an outspoken advocate of reform at home, a key spokesperson, in fact, for, for that wing of the reformist class, which inclined more towards a Muslim Brotherhood-influenced perspective on politics. Now, I've, I've tried to be balanced there. I believe those are the facts about Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, if you agree, Eamon, then you can tell us about when you met Jamal Khashoggi in 2012. I met him in 2012 in Jeddah, uh, and I must say I was impressed uh, by his intellect, uh, by his knowledge, by his ability to recall events uh, and dates uh, with clarity, uh, individuals. Um, his no, you know, and his knowledge radiated. You can tell basically that the man had spoke with an air of authority um, and understanding and background knowledge which made him sometimes come across as arrogant. But nonetheless, if I was Jamal, I would be arrogant a little bit too. Like, I mean, <laughs> Some people might consider you to be a bit arrogant in your knowledge, Eamon. <laughs> um, maybe I should be more humble, actually. <laughs> we all should be more humble, Eamon. <laughs> Absolutely. So there was a red flag, though, uh, which annoyed me when he expressed 
uh, indignation that I worked for the British because at the time, of course, I kept this uh, issue secret. It was still 2012. I didn't come out, you know, uh, publicly as, um, you know, a double agent until 2015. But of course, because of the, um, you know, I didn't want to alarm him that, oh, I knew Bin Laden because I was a member of the Qaeda. So I thought, okay, I will soothe his fears by saying, but also I was a double agent, you know, so... And he was said, really? I mean, how how could you? How could you, you know, do that even? And I was, what? Joining a Qaeda? He said, no, joining the British. And I was like, um, Jamal, you know, uh, so of course, like, and I didn't call him Jamal. I said, Ustaz Jamal, I have to, you know, uh, show some respect. So I said to him, Ustaz Jamal, I mean, I was actually passing information to the British on Al-Qaeda in Arabia, you know, including people like Al-Ayari and Al-Migrin and Al-Hajj, like, I mean, who were, who were terror masterminds in Saudi Arabia. They were actually, you know, terrorizing this country. Well, they launched enormous attacks, killing many, many people. Yes, absolutely. Foreigners and Saudis alike. So I said, when I said this to him, that seemed to calm him down, um, you know, and he was saying, yeah, but I don't like the British. I mean, basically, like, I mean, you know, he, he, he called Britain, uh, uh, like, you know, I mean, the mother of all evils. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He lived in London for much of the 90s where he was ed- editing a newspaper here. That's, exactly. Uh, I mean, so I was wondering, okay, thank you uh, for your well, insight. You know, um, he, 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 of course, knew Osama bin Laden from, from early on in the 80s. Um, there, there, you know, he must have had some lingering... Disappointment, would you say? No, no, it's a romantic idea of Osama bin Laden. I mean, the man was on and on about the manner of his burial. It's like, you know, which idiot who advised the Americans, you know, to just dump his body to the sea? That's not how he should have been buried. He should have been buried with honor. And I, and I kept telling him, you know, Ustad Jamal, I mean, remember, please, that, you know, the Osama bin Laden you knew in the 1980s and early 1990s is not the same that man that I met in the mid-1990s. I mean, by then, the complete brainwash, you know, by the Egyptian uh, jihadists and extremists around him, you know, was complete. They really, totally, totally, like, you know, changed him into the monster that he, uh, you know, was transformed into later. So please, you know, uh, do not confuse the two. Um, he changed. People change, you know, to the worse. Um, and he still he still had a lingering romantic vision of Osama bin Laden. And he said, you know, if only we engaged with him. I remember this word exactly. If only we engaged with him, we could have saved him, you know, from those Egyptians, brought him back to Saudi Arabia for rehabilitation. Of course, he actually was sent to the Sudan in the mid-90s to engage with Osama bin Laden and bring him back to Saudi Arabia, and he failed. At that time, he was already an intelligence asset for the Saudi uh, government. He became an advisor to Prince Turkey al-Faisal, the head of Saudi intelligence, and remained in that capacity for Prince Turkey until that fateful year, 2013, when Prince Turkey decided to back King Abdullah's support of the coup against the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. This is where a kind of rift opened up between Jamal Khashoggi and the royal family. Oh, totally. That's exactly the time when Jamal realized that the government is now heading towards uh, a direction of confrontation with the Muslim Brotherhood. So this is why when, you know, when we talk about the fact that the rift between Jamal and the royal family didn't happen when, you know, King Salman and his son MBS came to power. No, it happened, you know, two years earlier than that. We don't want to get into the weeds here of Saudi politics, though it is fascinating. King Salman becomes king in 2015. Shortly thereafter, he makes his nephew, Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, crown prince. 
Muhammad bin Nayef, it is understood, had opposed the move to support the coup in Egypt. He thought that uh, Saudi Arabia should maintain its delicate balancing act with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So he was already a little bit out of step with the way things were going in Riyadh, which is why in 2017, Mohammed bin Salman managed to replace Mohammed bin Nayef as crown prince. Mohammed bin Nayef was placed under house arrest. Mohammed bin Nayef's closest advisor, Saad al-Jabri, fled the country. And in the same month that that happened, Jamal Khashoggi fled the country. He moved to the United States and began uh, writing editorials for the Washington Post. So there he is, writing editorials for the Washington Post, some of them critical of the Saudi government, but nonetheless, that's what he's doing. How then, Eamon, does he end up chopped into small bits in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul? Well, the Saudi intelligence uh, were worried that since Jamal uh, was one of their assets for almost 20 years, um, that he might leak sensitive information and intelligence to Saudi government opponents in the region, you know, namely Qatar and Turkey. And according to one of the intelligence officers I talked to at the time, you know, they feel that he might have done that. Um, and why do they think that? What, what are the what are the, what was the evidence? Because some information were leaked, you know, to Qatari in a backed press, uh, which suggests that Jamal might have been the source. Most likely, he was the source. Um, and as a result, you know, the Saudis were uh, extremely annoyed with him. Um, countries tend to be annoyed with former intelligence operatives blabbing out to the press, um, you know, in a negative way. That's why I never speak ill of the British government ever. You know, you never heard it from me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so basically the situation here is that the Saudis uh, started to become agitated and, you know, they were trying several um, tactics to lure him back into the country, um, you know, with offers of amnesty, with offers of come back, we will just debrief you and you will be fine. But he was having none of it. He know basically that, you know, as soon as you go back, he will disappear into one of the cells, you know, for a few years, uh, won't be released and won't see his family maybe for four or five years at least. So he did what he, the sensible thing of staying in the United States. That's perfect. However, it all went horribly wrong when he fell in love with a young Turkish woman um, who was an intelligence analyst in the Turkish military intelligence or called the MIT, which, you know, her own father also was, uh, you know, a uh, intelligence operative in the same agency. So he fell in love with her. He was lured to Turkey by the uh, Turkish um intelligence and with Qatari-backed money in order to set up something called the Dawn Initiative, which is a think tank to promote uh, democratic reform uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf countries. And he decided to move to Istanbul. And when he moved there, of course, he, you know, um, married uh, that woman um, all the press call her uh, his fiance, but in reality, the marriage actually was um, based on religious ceremony. So they went through a, 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 a religious marriage, but uh, but according to the government, they weren't married. So she was religiously his wife, but legally wasn't. Um, and there is a reason for that because Jamal was already married to two ladies in um, you know Saudi Arabia. He already had two wives. 
you know, and he was married to them because Saudi Arabia polygamy is allowed, but in Turkey it wasn't. So he needed proof of divorce from both wives, which, uh, you know, he obtained in the end. But the idea is that he needs to go to the Saudi consulate uh, in Istanbul in order to obtain these papers. And that is where, you know, um, of course, the tragedy happened. First, he went uh, for the first meeting there in order to ask for the papers. Um, and the Saudi uh, consulate promised, yeah, you can come back and we will provide you with all the papers necessary. Um, however, of course, the uh, Saudi consulate alerted the uh, Saudi royal court that, you know, Jamal was, you know, uh, at our consulate. I mean, he was asking for the papers, you know, to marry someone. And not only that, we know precisely when he's going to come back. Absolutely. So as far as the Saudis were concerned, they were aware already of his plans with the Qataris and the Turks to establish that Dawn Center in Istanbul. Um, they were worried about his links to a, a group of fanatics in um, uh, Turkey called Hizb al-Ummah. Um, you know, which is the Ummah party run by, um, you know, people who are close to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, opposition people, you know, against the UAE, against Kuwait, against Egypt, against, you know, and, you know, linked to the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood. So they were worried that he is getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the enemy's laps. So now the Saudi government knows that on this date, and at this time, Jamal Khashoggi is going to be in our consulate in Istanbul. But they have only a week. And this is, I think, where things started to go horribly wrong as far as the Saudi plan was concerned. Well, what was this plan? What did they want to do? Did they want to kill him? Okay, this is where I really beg the listeners' indulgence because the prevailing narrative out there is that the Saudis wanted to kill him in their consulate. And this is, couldn't have been further from the truth. I know the reality here is that based on facts, precedent, and analysis, they wanted to kidnap him because everything about the team that was sent you know, to retrieve him from Istanbul, to kidnap him basically, is similar to previous, at least four occasions, you know, uh, in 2016, 2013, you know, and uh, 2012 and 2011. I mean, there were many occasions in the past, especially four occasions, where the Saudis will send private jets with teams in order to kidnap either a rogue member of the Saudi royal family or a certain officer or a businessman who is running away. I see. So you go you go abroad, you send a team abroad, they sedate the, the, their target, and then they claim that the target is ill, and then under the guise of medical evacuation, they're, they're airlifted out back to, back to Saudi. That's the kind of, that's the precedent. Absolutely. That's the precedent. The analysis here is that if the Saudis wanted him dead, and I've been told this now by a multitude of Saudi um, either officers or uh, senior officials, if we wanted him dead, why we send our own people to be caught on cameras, you know, to do the deed on our own soil there in Istanbul, which is, you know, the Saudi consulate, you know, having our fingerprints all over it. You know, we don't do that. Like, I mean, this is very stupid. If we wanted him dead, there are, in Istanbul especially, you know, there are Chechen mafias, Russian mafias, Albanian mafias. We could have hired any of them for $200,000. They would have done the job perfectly and our hands will be clean. We didn't want to kill him, you know, and that's not our, uh, you know, uh, MO or modus operandi. I mean, if that's the case, Eamon, then why did they send a forensic scientist with a bone saw? I mean, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty damning evidence, isn't it? No, absolutely not. And the reason is because with every other kidnapping, they would have done the same. Why? Because at any given stage, either the uh, victim would resist and die, so you need to dispose, or 
the victim, you know, the one who's, you know, you need to kidnap, could actually resist and kill someone, kill a member of your team. So you need also to, you know, basically dismember that member and bring him back. It's not a very happy story, that's for sure. So so what happened in the consulate according to your, your analysis and what you know? The week you know, time scale in which they were supposed to put this team together and send them, you know, was one of the reasons why the whole operation failed, as well as who was put in charge of this operation. Uh, in the past, it used to be only the GIP, you know, the General Intelligence Presidency, which basically handled such cases. Which is like the CIA of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. In this case, it was mostly done under the supervision of Saud al-Qahtani. Saud al-Qahtani, at that time, the crown prince MBS's top advisor. Absolutely. Now, he is an amateur as well as a sadist, um, an incompetent, you know, to add, you know, you know, to put three things together in a deadly combination. An incompetent, sadistic amateur. Well, that doesn't sound like he, he, you're not his biggest fan. <laughs> oh, God, like, I mean, you know, he, you know, he is... Well, he was one of the obstacles to real reform in Saudi Arabia and, you know, maybe one of the, you know, one of the silver linings, basically, of what happened with Jamal, um, you know, may God bless his soul, was the fact that, you know, uh, Saud al-Ghahtani was taken out of the picture because of, uh, you know, this incident. But nonetheless, what happened is that in the embassy, and we have to rely on, you know, uh, at least two Western intelligence agents who I know who listened to the you know, carefully selected and edited seven and a half minutes audio tape from inside the consulate. Yeah, the Turkish government had actually bugged the consulate and then after the fact released seven and a half minutes of the audio to the intelligence community. So Jamal Khashoggi arrives, they arrest him, they place him in front of a Skype call to Saad al-Qahtani. Well, from what I gathered from these two European intelligence uh, analysts who listened to the tape, um, he was rude, um, condescending. You mean Saud al-Qahtani? Yes, yeah. and disrespectful towards Jamal. I mean, there was no question, you know, that with all this disrespect and all this bile, you know, being thrown at him by Saud al-Qahtani, I mean, he realized he's going to be kidnapped because he's aware of all the kidnappings that happened before and that he's going to be sedated. So he started to resist. So when they inserted the sed uh, uh, sedative gun in his neck, the Saudi government narrative is that it malfunctioned. Whether it malfunctioned or not, the reality is that the pumping of the sedative might have been uh, prolonged and you know, more sedative went into his system because either the struggle or malfunction of the sedative gun itself. Nonetheless, that caused a cardiac arrest and he died. And this is where the team there you know, could have salvage the whole issue by basically just calling an ambulance. That is the right thing to do immediately. Call an ambulance and just say, he just collapsed. You know, he was, you know, uh, out of control. We wanted to sedate him and just he collapsed. And they could have basically avoided a complete disaster that happened afterwards. But, and, you know, and who knows, maybe the uh, Turkish uh, medics could have revived him on the spot. Um, but unfortunately they decided to go down the dark path of cover-up. And this is where the, uh, you know, the forensic medical expert was called in order to um, dismember and to get rid of uh, Jamal's body. And so the dismemberment happened. And 
to this day, no one knows where Jamal's body is. And this is when the lies started to be concocted around what really happened. Lies from the perpetrators, lies from the Saudi government, confusion, mis-messaging. Mis the narrative was constantly changing. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible cock-up. And, and, you know, basically surrounded by tremendous evil and darkness. <laughs> Absolutely. And the problem is because the advisors, you know, especially Saud al-Ghahtani and the perpetrators, the team, were not communicating properly with the, uh, you know, with the government back home what really happened. And they gave conflicting narratives to the point where they started blaming each other. And everyone is saying, well, the fault lies with this person or that person or that person. So it became a really um, an issue of the truth lost you know, between a group of incompetent, you know, operatives who basically, you know, bogged down the whole operation. Um, what was supposed to be a straightforward medical evacuation slash kidnapping, you know, turned into a gr gruesome murder um, and an international scandal on a big scale. The Turkish, you know, government wanted to milk this as much as possible for their own advantage, you know, including, you know, trade deals or weapon deals with the Saudis. And they were negotiating these, you know, absolutely. Um, the problem here is that the narrative was already out and decided that it is a murder. It is an assassination. That's the that's the problem. It was a murder, but the but the I think the the narrative is it was a premeditated assassination, which is what you're what you're saying it was not. No, there was no premeditation for assassination. If they wanted to assassinate him, there are many other ways they could have done it without having to do it themselves. Eventually, the perpetrators of the murder in the consulate were arrested by the Saudi government, uh, and. An investigation was launched, and according to the Saudi government, justice was served there. They were found guilty of murder. The Saudi government eventually admitted that a murder had occurred. They denied that the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, knew anything about it in advance. People contest that, of course. But no one was executed, Eamon. Uh, reports are that people like Saud al-Qahtani are under house arrest, not even in prison. How can we say justice was served if at following this murder, no one was executed, no one uh, is, is serving really hard time? And this is where we have to go back, you know, again to the question of who is in control of this process now. It will be the family. The family of the victim. Khashoggi's family, yes, absolutely. So we're talking about Salah, Abdullah, um, you know, his sons, um, you know, the question of what will happen to the people? Now, there were 16 people involved. You know, um, uh, five were found um, not guilty of the murder because, you know, they were away. Um, you know, and the uh, five were sentenced to death and um, uh, six people were uh, sentenced to prison, um, you know, uh, terms. Now, even the five who were supposed to be executed, they are still serving prison um, uh, sentences. Now... The question here is that it was put before the family that they were, uh, we have these five who we believe that caused the struggle to go out of hand. They are the ones who agitated him more than anything else. They are the ones who are responsible for, responsible for not calling you know, for help afterwards and then decided to let him just die on the floor and then be dismembered. And these five will face the death penalty. So 
uh, a court sentenced him to death, and their fate then was presented to uh, the sons of Jamal Khashoggi, Salah and Abdullah. They were presented with the facts that these people are sentenced to death. What is your you know, desire? Do you want to forgive or do you want to um, you know, see justice uh, you know, uh, served and these people executed? Now, you know, to show something is that the family you know, decided not to forgive for five months. For five months, they held their ground all the way until May of 2020. And... Then they said that the reason why they wanted to, you know, for, you know, uh, to wait for five months is because May 2020 coincided with the month of Ramadan, in the holy month of Ramadan, and that they wanted to announce the forgiveness um, during the month of Ramadan in order for this act of forgiveness to be amplified in the eyes of God. But also at the same time, to my knowledge, um, and in good authority, that the considerable uh, compensation you know, and restitution by the Saudi government was paid to the family, um, whether in a very large lump sum in the tens of millions of US dollars, as well as, you know, housing and income for life. Um, so it was one of the largest, still yet undisclosed, but largest settlement, you know, offered uh, by the Saudi government. In Western terms, we would not think that justice was served uh, in the Jamal Khashoggi case. Um, but you're saying that in Saudi terms, justice was served? Well, and this is where the clash of civilizations, you know, is going to happen now. Because in the Western mindsets, you know, any Western listener listening to me right now, they will think this is a farce. You know, these people should be sent to jail for the rest of their lives. And, you know, MBS himself should answer for this. And, you know, you, you will have all of these, you know, things being said. Yes, that's fine. I, I, I respect that. I understand that. From the Saudi perspective, it's no different than any other case. I mean, you know, it's, you know, that if the family said, OK, we forgive, we forgive. The Saudi mindset is that, one, the state admitted guilt, number one. Number two, the children were summoned to the royal court and they got an apology from the king and his son, MBS. They apologized and they explained that this was not our intention. All the facts, you know, basically that presented to the Khashoggi family and they were always given the uh, transcripts of the uh, interrogations, you know, uh, point to the fact that this was not supposed to be an assassination. It was supposed to be a kidnapping. But unfortunately, it went horribly wrong. And then the blood money. The blood money was paid. Once the blood money is paid and accepted by the family, then by Saudi standard, not mine, from the Saudi point of view, justice has been served. Well, there you have it. Eamon's take on one of the most shocking and notorious stories of our time. If anything, it shows us once again that they do things differently in the Middle East, but also how the geopolitical and ideological fault lines of the Cold War continue to resonate today, perhaps more than ever, given what we're seeing as of this recording along the Russian-Ukrainian border. With that in mind, next time on Conflicted, we're going to pivot away from the United States and towards its Cold War superpower competitor, the Soviet Union. What were the Soviets' designs on the Middle East? To what extent was the Cold War just a continuation of Britain's competition with Tsarist Russia in the Great Game? And how does all of that help us to understand what's going on today 
as Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden play an increasingly tense game of chicken over the geopolitical direction that Kiev will face, east or west. A quick friendly reminder that if you don't do so already, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MHConflicted. And while we're on the subject of Facebook, a reminder that we have a great community of fans over there, all discussing and arguing over the topics covered here on Conflicted, and we'd love you to step into the fray. You can join us there by searching Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. And finally, if you're a fan of ad-free podcasts and bonus content, then you can subscribe on your preferred platform to hear episodes entirely free of adverts and get that sweet bonus content in which, dear listener, we will be answering your questions. All this for just 99p on Apple Podcasts, and over on Spotify, find Conflicted Extra to also listen ad-free and get access to future bonus episodes for just 99p a month. There you have it. We can't wait for you to join us for another episode of Conflicted in two weeks' time. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer, Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.